Welcome to the Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. The clock is ticking down um, 2016, which means it's time for our end of the year best and worst special. We are going to discuss the tastiest things we ate in 2016, the most delicious things we cooked, some new ingredients we added to our larder, some new techniques we picked up. But first, Joining me right now is senior editor Julia Kramer and deputy editor Andrew Knowlton, the dynamic duo behind the Hot 10 list in our annual Best New Restaurants issue. How you doing, guys? Good. How are you? You know, it's good. It's 59 degrees out right now on December 16th or whatever it is. Crazy. No jackets. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm literally wearing a t-shirt. Knowlton, how you doing? I'm good. I'm ready to talk about some food and some great things I ate and some Poor things, Abe. Yeah, Knowlton. Never pulls any punches, which is what I like. All right, let's uh, let's hit the ground. So I'm going to talk about restaurants mostly, eating out, drinking out, uh, the, what you guys sort of sampled and surveyed and loved this year and maybe not loved so much. Um, so, uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I, there was that book, Fast Food Nation, back in the day. Had a big impact. I feel right now, though, we are living in fast casual nation. Wow. Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? What do you you think about all these concepts that these high-end chefs are opening up? What I like about it is that five years ago, it seemed like all these chefs were trying to go downscale, but all opening burger places, like all trying to do the same concept. And now it seems like the chefs are doing the things that they really are passionate about, like Brooks Headley opening a vegan fast food place. Like that's not just trying to capitalize on a trend. That's like clearly his passion well yeah brooks is interesting brooks was the pastry chef at del posto uh, michelin stars four stars in the new york times um cookbook author very acclaimed and he left a i imagine well-paying job to yeah, open comfortable job to open this little punk rocky you know storefront in the east village selling veggie burgers and and really good ice cream and vegetable dishes and yeah that i thought was was very cool you're reaching a lot more people as well like you know some people you know can't dine at a normal April Bloomfield restaurant or a Jose Andres, but they might have... Kramer, did you catch him how he said Jose Andres? That's beautiful. Can yeah. you say that again? <laughs> Jose Andres. Because that's what he says, and that's what I say. No, but the real, the real test is, I want a Shake Shack, I want a Pizzeria Vetri, I want a Momofuku chicken sandwich on road trips. I want... Chefs need to take over the highways because there's nowhere Ooh, to eat on highways I anymore. Like that. Yeah, the Autostrada, that kind of Italian way of the little panini. Auto grill. Auto grill. Yeah. What are you saying about McDonald's? He's not saying any. Hey, hey, don't get us in trouble here. No, no. But I think that'd be if there was a Fuku David Chang's uh, fried chicken sandwich concept on like the on I ninety five as I'm driving down it to DC. That would be amazing. I would, I would reroute my trip. I do reroute yeah. my trip. Yeah. So on riffing on in a sort of a similar sort of trend, but in a different direction in terms of food, um, you have a piece in our new January issue. I kind of love this headline, Locks and Loaded, updated pastrami sandwiches, beet cured salmon, and the chocolatiest babka await at New York City's new wave of Jewish delis and appetizing shops. Tell us about this. I love this story. It's basically documentation of what I eat throughout (laughs) the year, fit into three pages in the January issue. Basically sums up my favorite foods, bagels, babka, caviar. Caviar. (laughs) You can call them fish eggs. So this is is the resurgence of kind of Jewish, old school Jewish delis? Yeah, there's amazing old school Jewish delis in New York. Katz's, Second Avenue Deli, the original Russ and Daughters shop. But what's been really cool over the last year, year and a half, 
is the resurgence of the deli and the sort of reinvention of it and seeing how all these chefs and restaurateurs have taken this canon of food and just made it their own and made it fun and new. Yeah, I think what's cool about it is that they're very honoring of the past, but sort of updating it with really good ingredients and, and really good sort of uh, technique that, mm. you know, maybe they picked up a cooking school or something. Um, and it's not the same way that's been cooked for 60, 70 years. Um, all right. I, I, one thing I, I think we are guilty of at this publication, we talk a lot about New York City. We, <laughs> we, we live here, we eat here, we celebrate it, we're guilty. But there is so much good food out there in the country right now from coast to coast. So to each of you, what are some of those second cities uh, that are emerging as really interesting sort of food meccas? And where are you looking forward to visiting in the coming year, Andrew? I've, over the past couple of years, uh, found a, a love of a place that I, I used to probably make jokes about, which is Cincinnati, Ohio. And I just think Cincinnati is a microcosm of what's going on across the U.S. Is like There's a smart population down there who's hungry for new and exciting things. Kramer, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I just thought it was so great that we had Kindred Restaurant in Davidson, North Carolina, on our Hot 10 list this past year. And I'm really excited to go. This is not as small a town as Davidson, North Carolina, but I'm really excited to go to Pittsburgh. All right. Great stuff, guys. From Pittsburgh to Davidson to the new Jewish delis. But before we go, uh, we're going to hit up some best and worst things you ate all year. I'm going to throw some topics your way and let me know what you think. Kramer, best burger you had this year? Emily in Brooklyn. This is a very hyped burger. They only made like a dozen a night. Uh, one of those places. Huh? What is up with that? How can you only make a dozen Just burgers? Just make as many as you why is I, that, what, what, I hate that. What, why not make more? I don't know. I was against it, but then I went there and I was kind of resigned to not getting the burger because I was there at like 8 p.m. I was just going to get pizza. And then the server came over and she's like, we, we have, have one, one left. burger left. Do you want it? And I was like, yeah, I want it. And it wasn't even my type of burger. It's like a very thick patty, lots of caramelized onions on a borderline pretzel mm. bun, which wow. is I'm not a fan of. Seems, you know, just everything. Too everything you've said has been wrong so far. <laughs> Tell me about so, it. So why yeah. is it so good? It worked. It was just, it was not the kind of burger I would eat every day or every week or whatever. It was incredibly rich and indulgent. And it was kind of like the, you know, ribeye of burgers. Mm. Really good fat content. Yeah. You know, one thing that was a little sad about it is I think that everyone who goes to this restaurant, like on a date, which I was on with my husband, um, gets like one burger and one Splits pizza it. to yeah. share. So that was like a little, you know, a bit, bit Brooklyn, a bit much <laughs> for me, but I did enjoy it. Uh, Nolton, what about you? Uh, very succinctly, the best burger, not just my favorite burger, but the best burger that anyone's eaten this year is Cronenberger in Oakland, California. It started off as a pop-up in San Francisco in 2013, then he moved it across the bay, and he's producing by far the best high-end burger. I'm actually going to the Bay Area in a couple weeks. You gotta go. I gotta go. All right, it's on my list. Um, pizza, best pizza. We're hitting, we're hitting all that stuff first. I'm gonna go with Wit's End in Rockaway. Let's talk about your favorite Old school classic restaurant experience this year, Knowlton. My favorite place that I experienced uh, for the second, uh, second or third time was Bones, which is in Atlanta, Georgia, my hometown. Best steakhouse, I'd say, in Atlanta by far. Final question: the worst 
thing you ate all year, Knowlton? Three weeks ago, I was at a, a Brooklyn Nets game at the Barclays Center. They were playing my Atlanta Hawks, and I got a hot dog. And I bit into the hot dog, and the inside of it was frozen. Oh, my God. <laughs> but, but fortunately, it was cooked through because it's a hot dog. Well, it was already cooked. But the worst thing you can eat in the world is a frozen hot dog. Okay. Well, my worst thing I ate this year was when I went on a road trip with my former colleague, Allison Roman. And she was eating peanuts in the shell. Like the exterior Ugh. shell of the peanut. And I'd never seen anyone do that. And she's like, oh, no, it's totally normal. Like, everyone eats peanuts in the shell. So I was like, okay, okay. Give if, me you're, if you're an elephant. It was like eating sawdust. I mean, who would do that? You're still chewing right now. Yeah, yeah. Still digesting. <laughs> All right, guys. On that note, remember, don't eat peanuts with the shells on. Julia Kramer, thank you so much. Thank Andrew you. Knowlton, have a great holiday. Thanks, Adam. You know how you read about those artisanal foodie types who forge their own knives and ferment their own kimchi and make their own ricotta and mozzarella and are always feeding their 10-year-old sourdough starter? Well, we have a couple on staff. One is assistant editor Emil Stonic, and the other is test kitchen manager Brad Leone. And right now, we are going to head down to the BA Kitchen to talk to them to see what they've been cooking in 2015 and what they've got on tap for the year ahead. All right, we are here in the Bon Appetit Test Kitchen right now. So if you hear people whisking, I think that's Claire Seff. It's one of our food editors whisking behind me, some sort of egg yolk situation. Uh, and I'm joined right now by assistant editor Emil Stonic and test kitchen manager Brad Leone. Welcome to the show, guys. Hey, thanks for having well, us. Thanks for having us. All right. Um, I've, in the past, referred to you guys as food nerds. Is that okay? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's not the weirdest thing you've ever called me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been called worse. I'll <laughs> you've been called worse. But you were the two on staff who embark on these sort of like food projects where you're preserving stuff and curing and brining. And in fact, in front of me right now on, the, on our cool little kitchen island, there's a jar of what looked like preserved lemons, like in a ball jar. There's a bigger sort of science experiment of something yellow and red. I don't know what it is. Maybe there's a big slab of pastrami. And then I'm going to open this up. I don't know what this is. It looks like the kind of jar that you'd keep your... Uh, salt in or sugar in in your baking section but there's something brown and murky inside of it and bell cushing our producer challenged me to open it up and so i'm going to do this right now maybe i can get it by the microphone um <laughs> wow okay weirdly this looks much more disgusting than it smells it looks like fish parts in a murky brown sauce that have been sort of, I don't know if they're fermenting or curing or preserving. I really don't know the difference between all, all those three, technically, all of the above. But it actually smells kind of not bad. It's kind of like the pastrami of the sea. Can I a say that, Brad? Yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. What, what am I smelling? That, um, uh, my uh, first attempt of making my own fish sauce. Oh, oh cool. Like yeah. Asian-style fish sauce, yeah, which exactly. is usually popular with chefs these days. Right. And what did you do? You put... So this, I think the traditional method is where it's like it's packed in a barrel with salt and it's weighted and all the liquid drips from the bottom and that is the fish sauce. This style is where you take the fish, you chop it up, add a little garlic, add water, uh, some salt, a little sugar, a couple of little aromatics and you just let you leave it out for four days, room temp, covered, and then you put it in the fridge for four to six weeks and uh, when you're done, do a very good job of straining it 
and uh, there's your homemade fish sauce. Does it matter what kind of fish you use? Do you want like an oily? I use sardines, but okay. you can use like fresh. I just can't. It's hard to find fresh anchovies. Yeah. Uh, so I just use a nice oily kind of bait fish. You leave all the stuff inside. You leave them. Leave the guts in. No, I gutted that. it. You gutted them. I gut. I gut it, but everything else is in. Head, tail. Everything. All right. Besides fish sauce, I want to talk to you guys about what you've been making this year and what you hope to make in the year ahead. Emil, I'm going to start with you. What is the, what's the favorite thing you sort of got into this year? So I feel like one of the best projects that I worked on this year was uh, headgear, mm. which is, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Fergus Henderson's nose to tail eating, but he spends a lot of time talking about trotter gear, which is like braised pig's feet. So this is not clothing. It's not, it's not clothing, and it's not something that, that nerds, actual nerds wear when they're, like, in middle school or, <laughs> oh, you mean for, like, or like, the Don Like headgear, yeah. yeah nope. That's funny. Yeah. But, so he braises a bunch of pig's feet, um, and then once they're all tender, tears all the meat and fat and skin off, discards the bones, and then has this kind of, like, gloopy mixture that he calls trotter gear that he just mixes into stews, put it into a pot of beans, whatever, just to kind of add that, like, unctuous fattiness um, to something. You're not really like tasting the, the actual feet, but you're kind of getting that kind of lip-sticking quality. And so, yeah. Tasting the feet is a whole other website. Tasting the feet is <laughs> yeah. a different that's, website. It's a different podcast. Different podcast entirely. Wait, wait, wait. So, um, so you've, you've done this at home? So I have not made trotter gear at home, but I've been making headgear with okay. pig's heads. You've made me hungry for headgear. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, just uh, doing what I can. As you drink a beer. Right now, Emil Stonic's drinking a Budweiser beer. Budweiser. King of beers. King of beers. Says so on the label. All right, Brad, what about you? What was your, what was your top project this year? Well, I, well, top project's a tough one, but one of the, um, the one I'm most fired up about right now is I'm doing a lot of uh, briskets where I've either been you know, making a corn, you brine it, and it becomes a corned beef. So just to back up for the listener who might not be as, as high a degree of a cook as you. So your brisket, you buy the big slab of meat. And brisket is what you make, besides if you're a nice Jewish boy like me, but you make you know Hanukkah dinner out of it. But you also, it's the base for corned beef and pastrami. Right. They both and, and in barbecue in Texas. Sure. Yep. So, you, yeah, you can get it pretty much any butcher shop. I mean, even a lot of, like, you can probably get it at Whole Foods sometimes. And uh, you know, I just get, like, a first cut brisket or an untrimmed. You want a nice fat cap on it. And... Uh, I do a curing process, either in a liquid brine. So brine being what? What's it would in the be brine? salt, um, pink salt, which is like a curing salt. Okay. And it also gives it that color and it preserves it. Pepper so that's cor- what that's what makes like corned beef really pink. Yeah, it's the the, the curing pink salt. You can oh, do cool. It without, though, right? You can, yeah. You but that's can. interesting because typically, if you barbecue brisket or regular brisket, it's brown. It's kind of yeah, almost grayish and if, you if you cook those, it badly. Those nitrates and the pink salt, it'll go gray. Yeah. You know. So so you you brine it and yeah. water salt. Peppercorns, a little bit of sugar, um, just different spices. I mean, you can really, there's just normal like pickling spices pretty much. And uh, the wet brine I do for 10 days. And dry brine, which is all that stuff without the water, you just rub it on the brisket on a resting rack, refrigerated, uncovered, and you let it go for four days. And then. Both. Wait, you do both or only one? I do one. It's, it's okay. dry or wet. And is this for the corned beef or for the pastrami? We're getting there. Oh, we're getting there. Oh, <laughs> hey, 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 oh now, hey, your now. horses. So, yeah, it's for both. What, when you're done with the brining process, it becomes corned beef. Okay. And that you can either steam, boil like you would corned beef. To make pastrami, you take the corned beef right out of the brine and... From there, you cover it in the peppercorns. You make like a rub, different spices that you rub on the, on the brisket. So peppercorns and what else? Peppercorns. I like to put a little bit of cumin. So start to finish, how many days process is it? With the wet brine, it's about, about 15, 16 days. Wow. 
You so, heard that. So it's a project. All right. Very nicely done. All right, Emil, your second favorite thing you've done this year. Second favorite thing I've done this year. Maybe not involving meat. Okay, not involving meat. Um, I love making sauerkraut. And there are a lot of different things that you can, you know, sauerkraut, super simple, just cabbage, salt. Get some of the liquid out, pack it into a jar. But you can also do that with a lot of other. But that, I mean, that's it. Yeah, that's it. And then you wait. It, it, in a refrigerator? No. No. Outside. Outside. Outside yeah. on your counter? or yeah, on your counter for as long as your roommates will let and you have you, it there. Do you weight down the cabbage or anything? Or yeah, you, you normally need to weigh it down with like a... Some, they make kind of ceramic weights, mm-hmm. but sometimes I'll just use like a big jar of water. Yeah. You know, sealed. But are you trying to get the air out of it? You're trying to keep it submerged under uh-huh. its own brine. It basically makes its own... So when, oh, once you start brine. salting it, it you releases salt it, its liquid. It dry, you, know, you know, whenever you're salting yeah. like potatoes or cabbage or whatever, all that liquid comes out. This time of year for latkes, you know, yeah. you see that happening. I made latkes the other night. The yeah. amount of liquid I squeezed out of the it's onion crazy. potato mixture was insane. It's so much. I feel like I should be making potato martinis with it or something. <laughs> it was like oh, disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> it would have made disgusting, but I don't know. Maybe I can sell it. Uh, Brad, what do you got? One another thing I've been really into is preserving citruses. By preserving, citri? Do you mean citri? <laughs> I don't think so. No, they don't no. say that. No. In Latin, it would have been that. I think it's, it's U.S. turns into an I plural. Yes. Yeah. Sure. You took, you took I, Latin I didn't in take high school. Latin. No. Okay. Anyways, I think I'm right. I, I've been I've been kind of getting a little crazy with it. I've been doing just about all kinds of citrus I could find, from yuzu to clementines to key limes, lemons, Meyer lemons, and uh, it's pretty much I, I cut them in half. I wash them really well first. Always buy organic, and uh, cut them in half, and I, I de-seed them just so I don't oh, have to yeah. deal with it yeah. down the line. And then once the seeds are out, I throw them in a bowl, and usually it's just salt. You cover them, sprinkle them with salt. I do like a 50-50 salt and sugar. That's my new, my new experiment. <laughs> Don't get too crazy on us, Brad. No, 50-50. <laughs> so you're basically making like citrus sauerkraut. Kind of? No? No fermentation. No fermentation. It doesn't ferment at all? I don't think so. I mean, I don't think so. But why not? Maybe a little bit. Just there's so much salt and sugar. So once you cut it, I pack it in the jar. You cover it with some more. You just top it. You, every layer. You put like three in the jar, sprinkle some more salt and sugar. Put another layer, sprinkle another layer, sprinkle till it's full, and then I push it with my with my hand. Put your hand in there, push it until just you just want to get all the juices out, and then you leave it out at room temp for two three days until the jar everything's filled with its own liquid. Top and, on. Yep, top on, and then from there you keep it in the fridge, and it's I mean it'll last for at least a year. What do you do with all this stuff though? It's very nice. You can chop it up real fine, mix it in some yogurt as a dip with meats or fish or anything. It just adds a whole layer to that. Maybe a little into a uh, salad dressing. Salad dressing, pop it in a braise. You can put braise. it in anything. It just brings a whole... That's kind of like a gremolata sort of yep. maybe treatment at the end or yeah, some sure. braised meats. And that's why I like that a little bit of, of sugar too. So it's not just power, yeah, yeah, power, yeah. salt. All right, done. It's assigned. All right, all right. Before we go, I want you to each tell me one thing you're looking forward to making in the new year. Are you familiar with Verjus? Yeah. yeah, it's like un, unripe grapes that are pressed, and it's kind of it's sweet. It's just like it's unripe grape juice. So it's really sour. You're too young to know this, but Verjus is kind of a thing like in the '90s. Like well, a mean, lot of those chefs, like Gary Danko and stuff out in California, would talk about Verjus as if it was like this elixir. Right. Well, it is. It's, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of an elixir. It's you know, it's like less acidic than vinegar. It has a little bit of sweetness. It's like it's but, really awesome. But couldn't I just go buy a bottle? You could buy a bottle of Verjus, but what you can't buy is crabapple Verjus, um, which is what I'm really excited about. Is I was up on my friend's farm, Hart uh, Farm in Conway, Massachusetts, going to plug Anna's farm. All right. Um, and they delivered to New York City. Okay. And uh, she has a bunch of crabapple trees. 
and we juice some, and that has kind of a really similar, like, that kind of tannic, acidic. You know, you wouldn't want to eat a crab apple, but putting some of that juice, clarified juice, into a dressing. Do you mean jus? That jus, uh-huh. that crab apple jus, uh, into a dressing, or just into a cocktail, into some with some sparkling water um, as a non-alcoholic wow, cocktail. interesting. It's really delicious. So kind of like drinking vinegars mm-hmm. that are kind of yeah. become a... Yeah, so I kind of want, you know, I want to, at some point early on in the season, maybe like September... Just harvest a bunch of those, make a bunch of juice, and bottle it, and just have it to use for the rest of the year. Would you gift that, as they say? Or just keep it if, all for yourself? Uh, you know, I'll probably keep it all for myself. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll, I'll bring some <laughs> to Brad. For Brad. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Brad, what about you for the new year? I haven't never tried it yet, but I'm really, I want to try is I want to take monkfish liver and oh like, cure you just, it with... You just lost me. Cure it in salt and make like a, almost like a monkfish liver. I know this doesn't really make sense, but a monkfish liger, liver batarga. So it would be like a cylinder. Oh, batarga. Okay, wow. So but like a batarga style. I know it's not yeah. an egg. It's a liver. But um, where it would be like a hardened cylinder cured in salt. So, and so all the moisture would be extracted. Yep. And it would just be a hard cylinder. And you would be able to like grate it over pasta or over soups. Or That sounds great. Yeah. When monkfish liver is done right, it just it tastes like clean ocean. And I could eat that all day. <laughs> all right, guys. Thank you so much. Emil Stonic, Brad Leone. You've been listening to the Bon Appetit Podcast. Right. Joining me now in studio is our executive editor, Christine Mulkey. And Christine is one of those persons who always seems to know everything before everyone else does. And what she's doing now is what the rest of us will be doing 12 months from now. So, Christine, I want to talk to you about 2016 and the year ahead and what should we be eating and drinking? Uh, besides everything? <laughs> yes, good answer. <laughs> Let's start with the beginning of the day. Uh, no more coffee. Sorry, Adam. We're going to go to tea. Oh, I know. God. <laughs> you can stop making fun of me for my matcha whisk and my little bowl, but everyone's going to be doing it. If they're not doing it like that, they also have these little powdered packets that you just zap in the water. You can shake it up. You can do whatever. It's good for you. It's delicious. And it gives you a really nice sustained buzz. It doesn't just jack you up and dump you on the floor. It's like clean energy. Oh, but I, I, I like the violence <laughs> of coffee um, in, my mor- in my iced red eye every morning and afternoon. Um, I think it's interesting that the tea thing um, – and you've been a big tea person for a while. Um, but it's also, it seems like it's much more accessible now. There's cool sort of tea, do I call them parlors or tea oh, shops? Yeah. Like, there's the equivalent of the sort of the hipster coffee joints or now there's like hipster tea totally. joints, right? Totally. And there's big money behind it. Not just the wonderful artisanal places like Belloc and Greenpoint, Brooklyn. According to The Economist, by 2018, there are going to be 8,000 tea-based retail shops in wow. America. Let's take me, for example, because I'm sitting here. Um, I'm a coffee drinker, and I have coffee every day, a couple times a day. If I want to get into tea, what do you think the gateway tea is to get me interested? Well, I mean, matcha is great. I feel like I, I should be – I think the matcha tourist board should be calling me and making me a spokesperson. Right, explain matcha. What, I know it's okay. green. It looks cool. But why should I like it and what, what will it do for me? Well, not only does it taste delicious and it's really good, you can incorporate it into all kinds of things. So if you want to combine the tea trend with the fermentation trend, besides kombucha, and by the way, I want to make matcha kombucha and retire. Sorry, Adam, love my job. But yeah, (laughs) that might happen. Start your day with tea. I like it. It's out there. It's a thing. Uh, And you're going to be seeing a lot more of it in 2016. Number two, what do you got? With your tea, we're going to have some amazing bread. So if you're like me, you spend a lot of time on Instagram looking at bread porn. But what's also really exciting about these small local bakeries is they're working with local grain and 
people, even gluten intolerant people, are finding that with the long fermentation and with these sort of less refined grains or not the more common varietals, they're much more able to um, eat these breads. I talked to Liz Pruitt, who's married to Chad Robertson. We talked on the podcast, and she's actually gluten intolerant. Michael Pollan said, you know what, I think you can try Chad's bread. It's not going to kill you. And because it's such a long fermentation. You see so many of these great bakeries opening up um, throughout the country in both big towns and small. And the bread is just, it has flavor. It has like but there's almost a funkiness to it sometimes and crusty and wet on the inside and, and just the delicious. the grain thing that's happening is so exciting to have, you know, buckwheat or rye or spelt or all these things and to have tons of seeds on the top. And my husband just came back from L.A. and I was like, can you please go to Justa in Venice on your way to the airport? I know you're going to be really busy, but we need to have this bread because it's so special. So eat more bread. Yeah, and also look for it at your farmer's market. You know, that's often where some of these small bakeries will start. That's how Tartine Bakery started. It was in a farmer's market. Number three, what do you got? We're doing the top five. I'm still at breakfast, actually. Um, <laughs> Christine Mulkey's ingested like 9,600 calories before noon. I have two breakfasts. Um, and luckily, it's a trend. Breakfast all day is definitely a trend. The breakfast sandwich, obviously, is, is what's for dinner. Um, all right, number four. So we're not quite leaving the breakfast table. So basically, this whole tech startup disruptor culture has entered food. So they're kind of thinking, how can we take away the food and put in a different food? Or how can we change the food system and, you know, recreate some of these things that maybe aren't being made in a wonderful, sustainable way and also make a ton of money from it? So uh, Hampton Creek has been in the news a lot. It's a pea protein-based egg replacer. And it actually does mimic the egg. It tastes like the egg. They are using it in mayonnaise that they make. Hellman's is not amused. Um, they're using it in to make a raw cookie dough, which I don't know why that was or wasn't around when I was pregnant. It just seems like a cruel cosmic joke. Kite Hill, uh, they have a really wonderful almond milk yogurt. They have ricotta. They have sort of cream cheese spreads. And it's just, it's a really good way. It's a really great substitute. Often when you think of quote unquote vegan cheese or alt cheese, like there's nothing worse. I don't think I've ever thought about that. <laughs> Wait, maybe no. except maybe vegan meat, which is also something I've never really tried. Yeah. But um, that's that's definitely happening. So I'm very interested in finding ways to sort of incorporate them into my day. All right. Finally, uh, you've been doing a lot of eating all before noon. Yes. And then you, I go to sleep. You, but well, you might need a drink after, after work. You got to take the edge off. Okay. You get home. You're like, ah, oh, I need something to relax me. What are you going to be drinking in hard, 2016? Hard cider. More, 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 more. All right, so let's talk hard cider because I watch football a lot and I see like hard cider commercials like Angry Orchard. Is that what you're drinking? No, I, of course, am drinking the small batch artisanal thing. I mean, definitely cider is one of those plan B job things where I'm going to quit my job as a graphic designer and I've got some apple trees upstate and I'm going to, oh. It'll make six bottles a year. Exactly. And I'm buying them. So you're looking at like places like Wasail, which opened on the Lower East Side, which is all cider. And And that's a cider bar. It's a cider bar. It's really cool. They also have apple juice on tap, just the raw apple juice. But I'm obsessed with places like Aaron Burr, where they're doing really interesting, weird things. Where mm-hmm. the, One of the ones I bought last year is they are barreling the apples with, they're letting them sit on carrots and ginger. So it's oh, wow. actually carrot, apple, ginger. That's There's one that cool. they're doing with grapes that's beautiful. If you're drinking cider, would you compare it more towards beer or more towards wine, like in the course of a meal or an evening? You know, how do, how do you think of it as? I mean, cider loves food. You know, it's almost like 
it's, I would say it's almost like champagne on that level. Like you can kind of mm, take it start well, I like to finish. That. I like the champagne analogy. I've been, thank you. I've been to a couple of um, cider maker dinners at Wasale, and they have a pretty ambitious food program happening there. It's really fun. You feel like you're discovering something new. And also, it's not super high alcohol, so you can drink a lot more of it. Those days of the 16% giant Cabernets uh, hopefully are behind oh, us. it's um, all about the low alcohol wine, and I think that applies to cider too. All right, so guys, eat healthy in the morning, drink some low alcohol cider in the— All day. All, all day, yeah, <laughs> while at your desk. Um, don't take my matcha kombucha idea. Ucha, kombucha, kombucha, kombucha. <laughs> we'll think of a name, we'll trademark it, don't worry about it. Uh, all right, ladies and gentlemen, that's Christine Malky. Do what she says, because she always knows. Thanks, and this, You're welcome. And this has been the Bon Appetit Foodcast. Happy 2015 going into 16. This podcast is brought to you by executive producer Bell Cushing and project manager Carrie Polis with editing by Mitra Kaboli. The theme music is by Valerie and the Greedies. Tune in every Wednesday for a new episode on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.